This episode of Tester's Island Discs is sponsored by TestRail, a modern web-based test management tool which allows you to manage all of your testing efforts in a centralized location. To learn more about TestRail and to find out how you can sign up for a free trial, visit www.testrail.com or see the details in the show description. Welcome to Tester's Island Discs, your most musical guide to the world of software testing. My name's Neil Studd, and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Tester's Island Discs, where today I'm talking to Dan Billing. Dan is known as the Test Doctor on Twitter, and he also doctors as a contractor, where he helps to fix people's testing problems in the wild. He's well known for his knowledge in the area of security testing, And podcast fans will know him as my fellow co-host of the Screen Testing Podcast, where Dan spends a lot of time making references to Doctor Who, and I spend a lot of time making references to La La Land. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Hello, Neil. How are you? I'm brilliant, thank you. And it's nice to get you back on the mic. We've had a little break from Screen Testing, which uh, we're about to break our duck this week with a new episode of Screen Testing. But um, So it's a double header for us this week. I'm looking forward to that very much indeed. Anyone who listens to screen testing will know that you are basically the film buff. You're the one whose references cut the deepest. How does your love of music compare to your love of movies? It's pretty deep as well. I've been a music fan since a very small child. I, I learned to play the piano as a child. Um, my mother played the guitar when I was a child as well, until apparently I was the age of three or four. Apparently, no, probably younger than that. And I jumped on her acoustic guitar. Mm. I don't know why. I must have been playing. I don't know what happened. But my mum was a pretty good guitarist, and music was always heard in the house and in the car while I was growing up. So, yes, it has been for a long time. So your creativity stretches to music as well. Have you ever fancied yourself as a bit of a vocalist? Um, I have been known to sing occasionally. I do sing in the car. I was in a production of Fiddle on the Roof when I was at university. So I'm a relatively solid tenor. I, I can hold a note. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. I'm actually in, I'm investing in a new piano soon as well. So I'm actually going to teach myself the piano again, which should be fun. <laughs> now, obviously, movies and music cross over quite tightly. So going back to the world of movies, knowing your love, particularly the Bond franchise, there aren't any Bond themes in your selections here, but... Do you have a favourite Bond theme? Oh, that's very, very hard. Probably on the Majesty's Secret Service. The the version that was done by John Barry, hmm. uh, the, the main theme was the first theme to incorporate a standard orchestra with synthesizers. So you can hear those in the opening bars of the music. So it goes, da, 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 like that. That's all synthesizers. And the way that that theme picks up during the film with the action and the skiing and all that was, that was beautiful. And then there was the sort of sweeping things as Bond goes into the Alps and then the romance of meeting Tracy, the white, uh, the woman who's going to become his wife. Very briefly. Yeah, pr- very briefly, but played by Diana Rigg in the movie. Um, it, that's my favourite, I think my favourite Bond theme. Although I enjoyed the, the Living Daylights very much which is kind of more poppy, electronic. That was done by AHA. Obviously, your other massive love is Doctor Who. Doctor Who is something that you don't necessarily associate as having licensed music in it, but going through a Wikipedia page of lists of songs featured in Doctor Who, it's massive. Uh, yeah, it, it actually features quite a lot. 
Ticket to Ride by the Beatles appeared in an episode called The Chase from 1965. Um, I think it's Listen, Do You Want to Know a Secret appeared in Remembrance of the Daleks. And Courtney Pine turned up in one story during the 80s, which was pretty good. Uh, but yeah, it always has played a part. But then, of course, you've got the electronic music that goes alongside that. I'm particularly huge fan of electronic music. I've not put in my list uh, for, for today, but Depeche Mode are one of my favourite bands of all time. And their early use of electronic music in pop. But then you've got the likes of Orbital and folks like that who are influenced heavily by the work of Delia Derbyshire and the Radiophonic Workshop at the BBC. So a lot of the influences of the early electronic music artists feature very heavily in modern electronic music. If you look at stuff like Daft Punk, for example, it's incredible stuff. And then uh, their soundtrack for Tron Legacy was just awesome, I think. The best thing about the film, without yeah. a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Best thing about that movie. Yes, I agree with you. The reason I brought up the Doctor Who connection in particular is because your first song selection has actually featured in Doctor Who, although you say it actually turns out to be a complete coincidence. It is a coincidence, yes. <laughs> so my first song is uh, Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick by Ian Dewey and the Blockheads. I first heard this song probably in the late 70s or early 80s. It was actually a hit in 1979. And I moved from, I was born in Hampshire in the south of England, a place called Winchester, and I moved to Sussex, Burgess Hill. It's not far from Brighton. And my parents always had the radio on in the house. So in the evenings, my dad would put Radio 4 on and we would listen to the Archers together over dinner as a family. It would always be on when we were having our, our evening meal. And then uh, during the day or in the evenings and weekends when I was, wasn't at school or wasn't at playgroup or whatever, the, the music was generally on in the car or in the home. And sometimes, you know, Radio 1 at that time was pretty good. I don't listen to it now. But uh, this particular song was number one in 1979. It was played a lot in subsequent years. It really engaged with me as a child because obviously there's the rhythm, there's the, the melody, there's the, the insane lyrics by Ian Jury. And his performance I've seen subsequently on television. And there was a movie about him with Andy Serkis playing him a few years ago, which I thought was beautifully and touching. He actually went to a, uh, a school for disabled children in, um, in Sussex where my father and I both volunteered. Cheney Heritage, I helped, helped look, uh, run their scout group for a while when I was a teenager. And my dad did volunteering with the, with the children there. So actually, injury has kind of a double meaning for us. This particular song, however, really sort of engaged me. I used to dance and sing around the house about it. Apparently, I was singing it at playgroup. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and the, the lyrics are somewhat questionable. Uh, they have a lot of double meanings. There's a lot of double entendre and double meanings in the lyrics. It, it's actually quite a beautifully crafted song. And it has such a sense of humour it can't help but make me move and dance. I, I, I absolutely adore it. In the deserts of Sudan And the gardens of Japan From Milan to Yucatan Every woman's every man Hit me with your rhythm stick Hit me Hit me Hit me, hit me, hit 
me, hit me, hit me with your rhythm stick. Hit me slowly, hit me quick, hit me. That was Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick by Ian Jury and the Blockheads. Now, Dan, with you being on the podcast, it would be remiss of me to not talk about security testing a little bit. <laughs> now, a lot of testers are fearful of more technical aspects of testing and perhaps none so more than security because it is seen as being such a technical thing. How important do you think it is for a tester to have at least a base level of understanding about the world of security testing? Personally, I think that Testers can benefit hugely from having people with a broad set of different skills. Now, you may want to specialise deeply in one particular area, and other testers have talked a lot about this. So there's the the thinking about a broken comb or a T-shaped tester, which I know Rob Lambert, name check Rob. I used to work for Rob a long, long time ago. He was very, very keen on having people who had a broad set of skills, but then a deep knowledge in specific areas. And he really helped push me on learning security and because he could see that it was something that I was really interested in. And I took that and ran with it when I was at New Voice Media. And I think it, it, it gave my career a real positive boost in terms of uh, my skill set, my developing understanding of how web applications work and how mobile applications work. And from a security perspective, and it can't hurt your career to investigate a aspect of technical learning in depth. Now, that could be automation, it could be performance, it could be security. And there's a lot of debate in testing community about whether code, uh, testers should learn to code or not. And I'm of the mind that testers can learn to code if they want to learn to code. And it's the same with security. If that's something you want to do then and it interests you, then by all means, it can do no harm to your career to specialise in this in an area like t- testing, uh, like security testing, sorry. And you're someone who obviously has taken that level of specialist expertise to the extreme. I mean, you, you are, if you don't mind me saying so, one of the world experts, I would say, in security testing. I would put you in a, in a, a group with others. Don't worry, I'm not, I'm not putting you on a pedestal, but you're, you're up there, certainly. But be it security testing or performance testing or, or whatever it is that you want to get a level of expertise at, Obviously, you, you started at a point where your knowledge was zero or little. What was your route? I know everyone learns differently, but what was your route to go from not really knowing very much to realizing you wanted to learn more to actually achieving that knowledge? What, what, how do you learn? Uh, so I prefer to learn with other people. I, I'm quite happy reading a book or looking at a website or following a course online. The most times I've ever learned from someone has always been mentoring and pairing with someone. And I can tell you the most rewarding professional relationship I've had in that regard is with with Bill Matthews. Bill has been instrumental in my career, and I can't thank him enough. You know, when I first met him and he was presenting at Test Batch, I think in, I think it was probably 2013 or 14, 13, I think. And he did a, a talk on security testing. And he was looking to build a security model with people in the audience and, you know, I kept throwing my hand up. <laughs> and he said that, you know, we know more than we think we do. And he's since subsequently encouraged me to develop those skills. And I've worked quite closely with him delivering workshops at a couple of conferences in the past. 
And then since, you know, he's gone on to do other things, I've actually taken on and done a lot more in my own, on my own right, on my own, and, you know, built my own vulnerable websites to help support other people's learning and my own learning, which is why I built Ticket Magpie to help me with that. By building something like that and working with someone closely, I paired on Ticket Magpie with a developer called David Hertanian, a French developer who used to work for Coderance. I met him through Franzi Swaran, who put me in touch with him when we met at a conference a few years ago. People like David and Franzi have always been instrumental in my career because they're people who are technical, who you compare with to learn more from. And you need to seek out those people who are willing to help you learn. And that could be internally in your own organizations, or it could be someone external to your organization, maybe via Slack or some other mechanism or on Twitter who are more than willing to help you learn. This is another shout out on plug for Danny Dainton's Postman uh, GitHub repo. Which is which is there's a tick for the episode. There's Danny's mention for the episode, <laughs> which which is excellent, and it's a great example of the kind of people you can contact and say, "Hey, I need a little bit of help here. Can you point me to some resources?" Uh, I've had uh, quite a few people contact me recently over the last six months or so, saying, "How can we set up G Shop? Can you show me how you can figure Ticket Magpie?" I I've used it in a workshop here or here or here, and it's really great to hear that that's happening. Apparently, I got a shout out at the Liverpool Tester Gathering last night, and I had no idea that there was a security topic. And it was lovely to get a, a shout out in the same sentence as someone like Troy Hunt, for example, uh, the Australian security specialist. And, and I'm by, by no means in his, even in his league. I'm, I'm several leagues below, but you know, it's very flattering uh, to, to you know hear that people are using my tools and learning from my workshops. And I really, you know, I take a lot of heart from that and want to make them better for the next set of people that I'm going to, you know, work with. And we'll talk more about those tools and how you deliver workshops in the next section after we hear your second song selection. My next song is Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd. Uh, This song's on the wall, uh, which came out again in 1979. So the late 70s and early 80s from a musical perspective are very important to me. But Pink Floyd have a very deeper meaning for me in terms of my relationship with my father. Those of you that know me personally know that my my father at at, at the moment is um, unfortunately terminally ill. He, He has cancer. So actually this song helps me manifest some of that thinking about you know, how I deal with the grief of losing my dad, but actually developing a stronger relationship with him over the last 10 years has been fantastic. And whilst I didn't have a very close relationship with him as a child, uh, certainly not as a teenager, as an adult, you know, when I come to visit him and we talk to listen to music in the past and we, we talk about the things he enjoys, Pink Floyd has always been there as a common relationship between us. So he introduced me to their music, and this is the first album that I listened to of theirs with him. And this is my favourite song from that album, although that there are others on there which are excellent, like Mother, for example. But this one's my favourite. I'm, I'm also a particular fan of the cover of this song by the Sister Sisters. I was going to ask. Yeah, I, I think the Sister Sisters are, are my fanta- one of my favourite modern disco bands. 
they're one of, still one of my favourites now. They, they, you know, they've changed direction, become more electronic, more, you know, as they've evolved as a band themselves. And, you know, it's, again, this experimental music that I really, really love. And Pink Floyd are probably the big daddies of that, really. I think, I think a lot of the music that I've listened to subsequently have really stemmed from my love of experimental music. And, and Pink Floyd are, uh, yeah, as I say, the daddy when it comes to that. Pink Floyd with Comfortably Numb. Now, we were talking before about learning from others in the industry and doing that through attending tutorials, workshops, meetups, talks, that sort of thing. And again, Dan, you're an A1 top tier conference presenter. We've we've stood on many a stage together at the same time. A1 top tier, really? (laughs) Premier League, Dan. I'd say I'm probably League One, maybe, if I'm lucky, (laughs) looking to get promoted to the Premiership next season. Uh, no, <laughs> but you're, I've seen I've seen you give talks. I've seen you give workshops, and you are someone who puts a lot of thought into their material, not just towards the actual technical content itself, but at pitching it towards the audience in a way that they can understand it. Because that's one of the really hard things about delivering technical content is how do you pitch that to a room full of people when you don't know how much they already know? Yeah, I find the talks need a lot more work than the tutorials on this. Because if I'm pitching a tutorial, the people that are coming are generally ready and prepared for something technical. And they brought their laptop, they configured it, they might have had some issues and I can support them with that. But the talks that I've done in the past, it's presenting very, very technical material in a way that's accessible to people who aren't particularly technical themselves or haven't done technical work before. And then testing of all kinds is technical in some way. I will try and pitch it at a point where it's accessible to everybody, but it's pushing the knowledge envelope as well. So introducing thoughts and ideas which might have not occurred to people. For example, I did a social engineering example in my last talk in at Test Bash Philadelphia, where we try and social engineer a user on the system using uh, our knowledge of films and television, which is quite quite fun to do as an audience audience participation kind of thing. And I love audience participation, so generating questions during the talk and leaving questions hanging in the room so that they can perhaps answer them themselves later on. And that, those are the kinds of things that I really love to do, sort of generate that kind of deep thinking and 
drawing people towards, not a conclusion, because I can't give them the answers, but taking them towards a place where they can go and answer those questions themselves. Yeah, nobody's expecting you to become an expert over the course of a 30-minute talk or a two-hour workshop, but it's it's kind of like the whole teacher person, the fish thing. If you can arm them with the ability to go away and learn more and find more themselves, the you give them the, the drive to do that and you reinforce the importance of doing that, I think you can get that across within 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 a talk. Well, well that actually reflects on my history. Um, not on my history as a, as a tester, but I, I actually um, I trained as a teacher, a primary school teacher. Um, in the late 90s and how I always did this as a teacher and latterly as a Cub Scout leader is engaging with the people that I'm working with be that the children in the classroom in my Cub Pack or the adults that I'm working with and really engaging with the material so I remember doing um, and when we had the natural literacy strategy rolled out by the Tony Blair government in I think 97 or 98 there was this whole section on creative writing and different genres of writing. I decided to do a bit on science fiction because, to be honest, not many of the teachers that I worked with knew anything about it. They weren't fans, mm-hmm. and, and I am. So I brought in my toys from various Star Wars films I had and Toy Dalek that I brought in with me, and it sort of generated conversations about the kinds of characters that, and, and stories you could have with such a character. And because the most recent Star Wars films had just come out that year or near around about that time, then a lot of the children recognised who these characters were. And it was, a, it was great to be able to generate sort of really exciting content and ideas from the children during that, that time. And I've done stuff with the Cubs, like doing um, an animation night where we made our own stop-motion animation. That's when we weren't outside camping, of course. Uh, and uh, things like uh, radio, radio controlled night where kids could bring in their own radio controlled toys and we, could, we had remote controlled football and radio controlled robot fighting and, you know, helicopters fly across the room. So seeing how far they could keep them in the air without crashing, that kind of thing. It's All that sort of stuff is a lot of fun. So when you talk about the new Star Wars films, was that Phantom Menace era? That uh, that was the fact. Yeah, it was the prequel trilogy. Yeah. So, were the kids ever able to figure out what midichlorians were? Uh, I didn't even approach that with them. <laughs> I think that's beyond even the best of us. <laughs> <laughs> what are midichlorians? Midichlorians are a microscopic life form that resides within all living cells. They live inside me. Inside your cells, yes, and we are symbionts with them. Symbionts. Life forms living together for mutual advantage. Without the midichlorians, life could not exist, and we would have no knowledge of the Force. So we're halfway through, Dan. What's your third song choice? So the the next choice is Radiohead's Let Down. It's from the album OK Computer. And this is, I believe, Radiohead's third album, the first being Pablo Honey and The Benz. And arguably, there's a lot of debate about whether the Benz or OK Computer is the better album or not. I don't care, but this particular song by Radiohead is my absolute favourite. The, the Again, an experimental band pushing the envelope in terms of the sounds that they're creating. There's a lot of people who say that OK Computer and the Benz are kind of the wish you were here and the dark side of the moon of my generation that grew up in the 90s. And I see a lot of parallels between the kind of music that Pink Floyd are creating and Radiohead created. And this particular album and this song in particular 
got me through a really horrible period of stress and depression. 1997 to 99 was really tough for me. Uh, when I was trained to be a teacher, I lost my grandmother around about that time, who was very dear to me. And it all kind of came together. You know, and subsequently, you know, the way I handle my mental health is very much driven through the music I listen to as well and the time I take to be mindful when I'm listening to music. And there is no album other than OK Computer that really sort of brings that all out into me. was let down by radiohead from the album okay computer one of dan's favorite albums and also one of mine now dan briefly while we're on the subject of you music testing and conferences i remember your nordic testing days 2015 talk in Tallinn, where you were talking about the testing of fear and you opened that presentation with a song although it's not one of your five song selections can you tell us what the song was and the story behind it uh yeah certainly uh, it was a song called midnight by coldplay from the album ghost stories now, I, I get the whole Coldplay rubbish kind of thing, and I don't think they are. Um, a lot of people find them boring. But this particular song really helped me calm me down when I was having a lot of anxiety while flying. And so I often put it on when I'm about to get on board a plane and sit down and the engines are about to start. Uh, I put it on at the beginning of the, this talk because it helped me focus my mind when I was extremely anxious about delivering this particular talk. Now, on that particular day, I'd found out that uh, a mentor of mine, uh, my earlier in my career, had just passed away. His name was Adrian Smith, and he was very instrumental in me getting into testing. He was an engineer at AOL, which was a company that I worked for earlier in my career, and he encouraged me to apply for my first testing job after doing some work for him on the call center floor at AOL CopySurve, which was my first job out of uni. And if it weren't for Adrian, I would not be a tester today. So that was a very you know, difficult, touching moment for me, how, trying to deal with my anxiety about doing that talk at the same time as hearing about Adrian's death. So uh, yeah, it was very, very difficult one moment for me that one. Yeah. You and I have both talked in the past publicly and privately about the need to practice mindfulness. And it sounds to me as if music plays a massive part in that mindfulness role for you. It, it does, absolutely. Uh, I uh, take great solace in listening to music while I'm uh, busy working and uh, particularly when I'm trying to focus on a particular task. 
So I would genuinely use um, film or movie soundtracks or the music of people like Max Richter uh, or Nils Fram and other sort of electronic or classical, modern classical artists and composers to help me focus on my work. Um, movie soundtracks help too. I've got a couple of playlists on Spotify, which I use and curate for personal use. You know, they're publicly available if people want to listen to them, but, you know. I'll put those in the show notes here. I, I follow both of them. Yeah. One just called Security and one called Testing Soundtracks, which is a movie. Yeah. And yeah, no, they're both uh, ones that I follow closely. The, the security one is mostly like spy themes <laughs> from different spy movies and spy shows, which I put on when I at the beginning of when I do a... Uh, a workshop or a tutorial yeah put, or a talk. you put those on you put you put on your hoodie and you you bring up your black terminal with green text <laughs> yeah with uh, with yeah hacker typer um <laughs> yeah uh, the testing soundtracks one is particularly good for me but i've been i've been listening to the blue notebooks by max richter recently and i've got uh, spaces by nils fram on vinyl i've actually recently bought myself a new record player so I'm actually switching back my music listening to vinyl ah. from having CDs. And all my CDs have gone to the local charity shop uh, for the hospice that my dad will be going into. And I'm looking through my dad's vinyl at the moment to see which ones are still in good condition to listen to. Yeah. So, you know, there we go. Yeah, the vinyl revival is going strong. We've got obviously we've got a massive backlog of films for screen testing, but I really do want to talk about high fidelity sometime. As, as somebody who has previously worked in a record store as well, that film and everything around it, and about yeah, just throwing a record on and sticking some headphones on, uh, yeah, I, I could talk about that film for days. I mm. I'm also someone who likes to use music as a focusing tool. So when I really need to work, I'll stick in some headphones and just put some music on and, and crack on with it. And as I work from home most of the time, that's not too bad. But I can find that if I'm in an office environment, I'm a bit self-conscious about putting headphones on because people might perceive me as being rude or that I don't want to talk to them. How do you, how do you deal with that if you're in a, in a workplace and you need to focus? <laughs> Are headphones a useful heuristic for people to know that you're busy, do you think? Uh, yeah, and I have had colleagues who have not ignored that heuristic. Mm. And I've had a, whoever's who use it regularly, and I do as well. So I've got a pair of expensive noise-cancelling headphones, which really help me focus on my work. And, you know, a pair of Bose QC35s was the best investment I've ever made in terms of my audio listening because it helps me focus when I'm on a plane and not be anxious, and it also helps me concentrate on my work. And I think people need to respect the balance between needing to focus and also the need to communicate inside the office. So we've got a lot of ways to communicate. You know, whether it's text-based like Slack or some other form of in, internal text-based communication, or you have people that sneak up on you and tap you on the shoulder. If I've got my headphones on, generally I want to communicate. I want to focus on my work and not be disturbed. Mm. So, But when I'm working at home, I put podcasts on. When I'm traveling into uh, London by train, I'm generally listening to an episode of uh, test designer discs <laughs> oh, <thank you> much. <laughs> or, or some other t uh, podcasts a lot of james bonding recently which has been good i'm, I'm on the catch up with that or some music of some kind uh, or an audiobook mm. so any of those things really help me i don't listen to audiobooks or podcasts while i work because i lose concentration 
on my work and focus on that if it's true to me I, so. I'm, I'm the other way I, I can have a if I have a podcast on I'll realize that I haven't listened to anything on the podcast for the last five minutes because I got distracted by work I, I can't do I, for the same reason I can't do it I, it's one or the other for me um, <laughs> but music yeah is a, is a massive part of uh, just helping you to focus you obviously have selected five songs here what was song number four that you've chosen to select for the island so my mother as well as my father have been a huge influence over my musical journey in my life I'm actually named after an Elton John song. <laughs> oh, Mr. Rocket Man Billing. Yeah. No, Daniel. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's an Elton John song called Daniel, uh, which I'm apparently named after. But also my grandfather was a vicar, so he approved of having a biblical name in the family. So that was, that was quite good. Um, but Philadelphia Freedom by Elton John is probably my most favourite sort of get up and dance songs there is. My mum had a a box set of Elton John LPs, which is now sitting behind me in my living room, which I've been testing to see whether they still work. And it sounds as crystal clear as it did when the when the LPs came to my house in the early eighties. And when my mum put this song on or played it in the car, oh, we would all just sing along with it. And it's got the most energetic lyrics and rhythm. I just love his his style of music. I love the you know his his blend of rock and roll and classical things. But then when he's blending things like disco and stuff like that, and that's also been interesting and exciting. And I've always been a fan of his work from an early age. So yeah, Philadelphia Freedom. was elton john with philadelphia freedom that i think is the first elton john selection to be picked on the desert island wow yeah that's a that's, a, that's a rare honor particularly 15 episodes in um we're, we're still, <laughs> three of the big hitters are still being knocked off so uh, yeah excellent now obviously people know you as being a security tester first and foremost but you mentioned at the start about the importance of being more of a generalist what are the non-security specific things that get you out of bed in the morning at the moment i'm uh, acting as a sort of de facto scrum master for my team, as as well as uh, developing myself as the head of testing for the organisation that I work for. So I'm developing strategy at the moment for the organisation. Uh, I'm learning a lot from other people in the in testing with regards to automation strategy and overall testing strategies, which are uh, both old and new at the same time. 
so I've been out of the sort of leadership and management game for a while. I, I you know, earlier in my career, about 2010, I, I got my first leadership management role. And now I'm back in it now as a, as a contractor. And I'm looking to people in, in my testing life to support me in that. And I do that by attending events and listening to them, following them on Twitter. People like Dan Ashby, for example, has been quite uh, helpful in that regard, looking at some of his work and how he sort of models and visualizes overall testing strategy, looking at other people in the industry, which have been very, very instrumental to me in my learning um, uh, developing empathy with other people when one person's got a particular bugbear with a particular tool or a particular strategy and there's a you know I could feel tension brewing then I, I, I've often found ways to diffuse it recently which has been a, a new development for me developing that understanding that leadership and that empathy to try and resolve problems in, in a way that's helpful to everyone in the team uh, and apart from security, which I haven't done a lot of recently, apart from my uh, tutorials and workshops, has been a really you know, refreshing way to get my head back in the game. Yeah, there is something very liberating about having the freedom to set a test strategy for yourself. Often that strategy is going to be potentially be constrained by restraints such as you know, budget, time, the amount of people you've got who can help execute that strategy. Mm-hmm. Regulations in in some of the industries I've worked in as well. Yeah. Do do you find constraints uh, are they a challenge or are they actually useful because they they tell you what the actual limitations are you're working under? Uh, very much both. You need to listen to them and be mindful of them, but also you can often turn them to your advantage. So because if you've got fewer resources available to you, for example, if it was a small company, it then gives you the opportunity to do a lot of cross-skilling and learning across the team and in a smaller organization that's much easier than it is in a big one so once you've got 10 plus people you're having to lead it becomes much more complex to attend to everybody's needs and i think you know i've got you know working with two or three people at the moment uh, two testers some quite a few developers and a lead architect and a product owner and it's in a small room in a small office so we can all see each other, we can all talk to each other. You have to be mindful of that as well. So you don't want to let, you know, discussions spill out and take over the room because, you know, there might be other people who want to focus on their work. So I think the constraints often help us in ways we don't realise. We think that we think they're holding us back when in fact they're actually keys that we can use to unlock other learning and knowledge in the team. Yeah, I always used to have something of a fear of constraints or, you know, just the, the pressure of working under constraints, particularly time, until I found myself in that position. So my current team, we release at least once a week. We often have quite a lot of forced deadlines, particularly if there are mandatory things. Obviously, you've got GDPR, which will be going live the day this, the day this episode comes up. is GDPR day, so the internet probably will stop working. <laughs> yeah, don't mention those four letters to me. Yeah. <laughs> but the really good thing about having you know a mandatory deadline like that is it really does shift the conversation. It forces you to have discussions like, we don't have time to do all the things that you want us to do. What are the no. things that matter? What are the things that come along later? What are we obligated to do? And it forces you to have things that people would otherwise put off talking about. So yeah, I think that could be really useful. It, they are very useful. They also uh, force you to be much more pragmatic and generate a much more risk-based approach to your testing as well. 
you got the word risk in. That'll make Richard Ding. happy. Richard did, Richard did the tweet. So if you're not talking about risk at least once a day, then you're doing it wrong. Uh, so yeah. yeah, you've made Richard's Bradshaw's day. That's Risk by Dan Billing, Dan's final uh, song selection. To the, to the tune of Kyle's Mum's a Bitch from the soundtrack <laughs> of um, uh, South Park. South Park. Park. Yeah, indeed, yeah. <laughs> but um, you, you haven't you haven't actually scorned your last song choice on that. What was your last song you picked? Down? <laughs> uh, it is a song called "Great Expectations" by a band called Elbow. And Elbow recently, in the last sort of fifteen years or so, have become one of my most favourite bands in the world. And this will please Richard as well. They're from Manchester. Uh, I was a, growing up in the nineteen nineties. You. Everybody will be aware of the the big Manchester scene that was happening here in the UK. Um, the likes of the Stone Roses, Oasis, countless other bands which were involved in that period. One of the sort of lesser well-known bands that came out at that time were Elbow, and they started getting very, very popular in the late 2000s. So their album, The Seldom Seen Kid, came out in that year. But this one is from Leaders of the Free World, which is also a great song. But I'm a bit of an old romantic, really, and the lyrics on this one are, are just stunning. This is sort of basically talks about this marriage or this relationship and how it's very much about the two people that are on that this bus. I think that it's not, but it's also a church, and it's oh, it's just beautifully wrapped up in this imagery. The line Stockport Supporters Club kindly supplied us, provided a choir. Uh, and it kind of lifts up and where Guy Garvey's voice. I often describe him as um, face of a badger, voice of an angel. <laughs> uh, um, but this song um, really sort of wraps me up in a, in a in a warm shroud and I hold it to me and it, it just makes me feel warm inside. That was Elbow with Great Expectations, Dan's final song choice. And Dan, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Our music tastes are quite closely in sync. Each band, certainly, I could have my own stories about. So uh, thank you very much for your song choices. So I've actually seen Elbow, I think, four times now. Yeah, I, I think I, I've missed missed maybe one or two of their album tours, but I've, I've seen them quite a lot, not just at festivals, but as, as a band. I, I saw them on their, their debut album tour for Asleep in the Back in 2000 at Southampton University. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So they're from the start. So with the business of your five songs out of the way, there is one more thing you're allowed to take to the desert island with you, Dan, and that is a choice of what book would accompany you. <laughs> well, I'd love to take a whole series of books, but I'm not sure if there's enough room. <laughs> it's filling up fast. People keep keep finding loopholes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a big fan of the Culture series by Ian M. Banks, and he took the pseudonym or the middle name M for 
Menzies in the middle there uh, for science fiction novels. And he wrote in the early 80s books like The Wasp Factory and Complicity and The Crow Road, which are also favourites of mine, but I love his culture series that he's been writing since the late 80s um, with, you know, Consider Phlebus, for example, Accession, Matter, Surface Detail, The Algebraist, all of those, they're, they're awesome books. My, my absolute favourite of those is The Player of Games, and there's this character in the culture called Gerge, and he's an expert at games playing. So risk-based games, kind of like poker, but with actual living high stakes, like they, they could kill you type stakes. And he has to go on this dangerous mission to undermine this you know, world which could pose a threat to the culture. So he's sent there as an agent, not only to play the game, but also undermine this other culture. Uh, and it's an incredibly richly described environment that he's in, but also the rules of the game um, and how the game is played is you know, central to the narrative of the book. It, it, it's so beautifully created and crafted this this particular book is my absolute favorite in the world uh, i particularly enjoy the the audio book on audible uh, as well because the reader peter kenny really sort of creates a a real depth of character for this um, for the scene and sadly he impacts died a few years ago from pancreatic cancer i think it was but his his culture series will stay with me forever and ever i, I love them Excellent. Ian M. Banks, the player of games, added to the bookshelf on the desert island. You can see all the books that previous guests have selected if you go to goodreads.com and find the list, which is linked to the show notes. The music selections are on Spotify. Again, the link is in the show notes. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, Dan, this has been our longest episode of Tessa's Island Disc so far. It's not come close to screen testing. I don't think we've had any screen testing episodes under much under an hour. <laughs> are you saying I talk too much? No, not at all. It's, the conversation just naturally flows when we get together. It's been a while since we met up in person as well, so uh, we long overdue a get-together. We, we are over, over to you. Yeah. Yes, we are. If I was a person who was out in the world who wanted to go and see where you are in the near future, have you got any events coming up? Uh, I do have a few, actually. This year is going to be a little bit quieter because I'm taking care of my dad. But in a few weeks, I'll be at Nordic Testing Days um, where I'm one of the organisers. I'm a volunteer there. So I'll be uh, supporting quite a few great workshoppers and speakers like Angie Jones and Lars Sojo and Gil Silverfeld and uh, Eric Brickarp. Uh, there's so many great speakers there this year. Uh, Rosie Hamilton's coming. Uh, I think Ash Winter and Chris Chant are going to be there. It, it, it's just alive with really great speakers from all over the world. Uh, Nordic Testing Days is a really great event. And uh, I look forward to that. I've got the London Tester Gathering workshops at the end of June. I'm doing a couple of meetups, um, one in Birmingham called Fusion, and possibly the Cambridge Tester meetup fairly soon as well. And and then that's it, quiet for a, f- a few months. People will catch up with me at, at Test Bash Manchester, possibly Test Bash Germany. And then I'll be running a workshop or tutorial, whole day tutorial at my first ever Agile Testing Days in Potsdam at the end of the year in November. Uh, I did hope to go last year, but family events meant that I couldn't really make it. But this year, I'm definitely going to be there. Awesome stuff. And obviously, people can catch you on Twitter. They can, at The Test Doctor. And then catch both of us together on the Screen Testing Podcast. We've got a new episode coming out. It should be the week after this comes out. 
And one would hope. <laughs> one would hope. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of trouble lining up guests, but um, <laughs> sch- scheduling conflicts, as is the way. Not, not least because our recording sessions for screen testing can be a bit long. Uh, we famously recorded for over three hours about Goldeneye and managed we, to edit. We did. Yeah, we pissed off about everybody in my <laughs> family doing that. Um, but yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah. We should have split uh, that, that episode into acts or at least released it as part one and part two. But uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, yeah, the screen testing will return. And just because it's you, Dan, and because you're special, we're going to play out with a special closing theme, which is actually a Doctor Who theme track. We're going to play the Simitones two-tone slash scar cover of the Doctor Who theme. So thank you very much one more time, Dan, for being on the podcast. <laughs> and no worries, Neil. You have to give a shout-out for Delia Darbyshire, who actually composed the original, uh, and Ron Grain, who composed the original as well. So there we go. Consider it done. Yeah, uh, yeah it's been a pleasure, Neil, always. And I'll speak to you all in two weeks' time. Bye. Testers on Discs is brought to you in association with the Ministry of Testing. Written and produced by Neil Studd. Theme music by Tony Lovich. Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island. Testers Island.